Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Chris, good to see you again. Good, good to see you too. Thank you for having me back on to talk with you. I was uh, um, going back to, to remember the last time we got together. It was in June in 2021, yeah. which I guess was two books ago. And that one was on American propaganda, as I recall. Uh, yeah, so the last one was on American propaganda, and then the other one was on tyranny coming home, so foreign interventions leading to reductions in liberty at home. And yeah, I guess it was tyranny coming yeah. home. We talked a little bit about propaganda too. So. Yeah, yeah. Like these, all these subjects actually go together. Yes, yes. Um, but but speaking about um, both propaganda and it, more importantly, tyranny coming home. I just had Thomas Massey on the show, and he was, I, I believe, an instrumental part in getting the Republican leadership to concede to this new subcommittee, which is part of uh, judiciary that's going to look at the weaponization of the FBI, CIA, and other agencies against Americans, surveillance and that kind of thing. Um, it, and our entire conversation was, why does Congress even have to do that? They have a responsibility to make sure that these, these alphabet agencies don't get crazy, but I, I take it as good news that they're at least going to, to raise the question. Yeah, certainly. So uh, people are referring to this as, as the, the current day or modern day church committee. Yeah. The church committee, of course, was in the, the 70s and uh, investigated FBI, CIA uh, abuses of power um, along the very lines you just laid out. And, and the, the kind of shocking part uh, on the one hand, but perhaps not so shocking if you understand how this apparatus works is, well, you know, all this stuff is really the same as it was when the church committee investigated, it's just more efficient technology, which is actually what makes it scarier in some sense. Yeah. But it's, it's certainly a, a good sign um, for my, to my way of thinking. Yeah, like um, from, from Massey's point of view and, and mine as well, like they're, they're you know, if you, if you actually believe in the uh, structure of divided government, um, Congress has a responsibility of oversight um, and a responsibility to legislate what it is that these agencies can and can't do. But you would probably appreciate the fact, um, this is speculation on my part, but I, I've seen this even when I worked on the Hill, that um, all of these oversight committees, um, no matter what the agency is, you don't get on that committee in order to hold that agency accountable. You get on that committee to bring home more stuff, and it becomes more of a collusion than an oversight. Um, so like for all of the work that the church committee did, nothing's changed except that our government's more weaponized against us. Yeah, and and the and the checks they did put in place, something like the FISA court, for instance, um, you know, again, without oversight, the executive branch can just circumvent that. We saw that during the the Bush administration uh, with the war on terror. That 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 with simple changes in how things are classified. So, you know, um, classifying a intelligence program as a covert action instead of an intelligence action means that you don't have to inform the entire intelligence committee. Um, which is supposed to oversee. You just have to inform the Gang of Eight, so the leadership, and, and it's it's meant to inform them, not to open it up to debate and push back and, and scrutiny, which basically means that there's there's no oversight at all. And you take that, in addition to the point you're making, that oftentimes the very people that are tasked with oversight have an incentive to perpetuate the behaviors because it benefits them and their constituents. You can see how it's it's quite problematic. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure your research has covered the ecosystem of of uh, um, all of these um, pieces of the military economy that that get um, distributed across the the political map so that that Republicans and Democrats and people from this district and this region so it's not concentrated it's it's everybody has a has a stake in in more war yep and and you know you see that throughout um, you know I, I refer to this as as peak cronyism it is it is the the height of cronyism because it, it touches almost every aspect of economic activity we don't think about it that way we think about people think about the military the military industrial complex and they think about Boeing and Raytheon and those are important aspects of it certainly but to run this you need healthcare providers you need accountants you need office supplies all of these different industries, you need labor, of course, that, that is pulled from the private sector, is kind of touched by the military industrial complex. There's no part of life it, it doesn't touch. And, um, uh, and and the point you raise is a good one. You look at something like the F-35 fighter jet, and it, it's actually brilliant the way it's set up from the perspective of the the, uh, the, the private firm in Congress. It's, some, it's spread over something like 40 plus states that produce different parts of it. And so what representative is ever going to, to push back on this and say, no, we can't do this anymore? Because it would literally be taking away jobs from their constituents. Uh, and so it's, it's, it creates these too big to fail projects within government that just perpetuate through time. So we're, um, I, I think most politicians would suggest we're at peace right now. You and I would, would probably quibble with that characterization of, of where the United States is. But in a peacetime economy, how big is the the military economy as a percentage of of our total um either as a percentage of our budget but as a percentage of of, of gdp gdp is usually yeah. the measure yeah some so during peacetime it's usually anywhere from two to four percent and and you know people will say well that's small that's relatively small well there's a couple of things to keep in mind one is that of course our gdp is enormous uh and as gdp grows that spending increases uh, and it's unclear you even need that much. I mean, that's one percentage of GDP is one way of thinking about it. Another way to think about it is in terms of what other governments are spending. And when you think about it in those terms, the United States is uh, something like more than the next nine countries combined. That includes, by the way, China and Russia. And so when you look at this in absolute dollar terms, uh, the United States government is, is, is quite large. Um, from that perspective. And, and, you know, so people say, well, we should just increase it to 5% because that's still relatively small. Uh, and again, as a percentage, that certainly sounds small. Um, but you start, again, thinking about all the consequences that the ripple effects it has. And those things are not measurable. It's, it's, it's not possible to measure, for instance, a entrepreneur who otherwise would be producing some technological innovation that would benefit people in a market who now shift their focus to placating political gatekeepers. And we see this constantly, even among companies that we don't think about, like Amazon, Google, of course, um, these big data, big tech companies that make a significant portion of their revenue through government contracts and actually have separate arms of their business set up to interact with government. Uh, so I think Google's branch is called like Google Public, or if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. And that the purpose of that is to specialize in government contracts, to hire people who have security clearance. And that shifts the nature of those companies, but also leads to a perverse set of consequences going back to things like surveillance. And so, you know, a lot of people on the left have recently been critiquing what they call surveillance capitalism. And they don't like the fact that, that Google 
Facebook, Apple collect data on us when you and I, for instance, use our smartphones. And you can think about that and think about what the implications of that are. But in a purely private market, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they can't show up at your door and kick it in. They can't uh, throw you in jail. They can't uh, uh, extract money out of your bank account uh, 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 and then, uh, you know, under some notion of civil asset forfeiture and then make you prove you're innocent. Government can. So what one of the big risks, of course, is when you get these entanglements between government and these big tech firms, uh, that 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 the concerns of people that are worried about what they call surveillance capitalism are actually legit. And they're legit not because private firms are collecting data, but because they become an appendage of the surveillance apparatus, and then government can use that data for entirely different reasons than targeting an advertisement to you like social media companies do. Yeah, getting me to buy um, uh, Hawaiian shirts with my cats imprinted on them is not the worst outcome of, of all this data surveillance, but Facebook definitely knows that I want that. But it, you know, it this gets to, you know, back to this, this committee and all of this debate about the Twitter files. I, I'm starting to realize, and I, I probably should have known this, but the, 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 all of that censorship comes from the national security apparatus of the government. It's, it's not something else. And, and a lot of those uh, spokespeople that they have in media that, that either worked for the FBI or the CIA, the Department of Defense, you know, Homeland Security, um, it's an echo chamber. So like the, the incentive for big tech to um, uh, cooperate, collude, um, view the, the defense machine as a source of revenue, like that's, 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 bigger than it ever was and and you you start to realize that when you watch like so so why is big tech complying with all of these demands to censor the narrative well it's it's a business decision as much as anything else yep combined with oftentimes when they don't the government accesses it anyway we know during the bush administration for instance that in addition to partnering with telecommunications companies and big data companies that the nsa was tapping into data sources of yahoo and others without them even knowing it um, and the only reason we do know it, of course, is because of the Snowden revelations. Yeah. And that's and that that's one of the crucial roles that whistleblowers play. Um, you know, people are, are very kind of torn, and even defenders of liberty often say, "Well, it's bad." You know, certain whistleblowing is bad, or much of whistleblowing is bad because it threatens national security. And of course, politicians and policymakers hate it. There's blood on their hands. It's the wor- the minute whistleblowers come out with something, it's the worst of the worst. And really what they're doing in many cases is pulling back the curtains on the actual operations of and that's why they don't like it. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, oftentimes you go back before Snowden, you go to Daniel Ellsberg, of course, and what did they do? They revealed systematic lying by government. Uh, and it wasn't just systematic lying about, you know, mundane waste of resources, even though that's important too. It was about war and prolonging a war and then systematically lying to the American populace to perpetuate that war and to insulate themselves from criticism, which is really at the foundation of any free society. To the extent that a free society is based on the citizenry driving the political machinery, meaning that to the extent we have representatives, they're supposed to represent our interests. What the control of information does is is invert that relationship. It basically says, look, we cannot rely on the citizenry to be judges of what's right, what's good, what they want. Oftentimes the logic is, well, they don't know. They can't handle the truth kind of yeah. of logic, right? Yeah. And so we need to control it. But that, that undermines the entire 
system then in terms of, of, of having the citizenry drive the process. If citizens aren't robust enough to handle those difficult situations, then we're going to end up in an authoritarian situation because we are voluntarily granting authoritarian power to a small group of elites. Yeah. And, and we're wrestling with that now. And it seems, um, I, I know this has always been this way, but it seems particularly intense right now. And it's, it's, it's probably a question of the size and scope of, of the military industrial complex. Yeah. And, and, and I should say just the very industrial organization of it. You know, one of the things I've come to realize, and, and, and this sounds quite radical to people, and it is only if you treat it as radical. But, but to my view, the radical position is I can empower this leviathan to surveil everything people do, but also constrain it. That, to yeah. me, that's a very radical, that's more radical than what I'm about to say. And what I'm about to say is the very nature of the, the entity is to expand, is to abuse powers that are given to it, not even because there's malicious people in charge, because of how bureaucracies work, because how mission creep works, uh, uh, because how human beings operate, even, even when it's human error. Uh, uh, and you combine all these things together and all of the, the dynamics push towards expansion, not contraction. And why does that matter? Well, one of the things I think lovers of liberty need to think about deeply is can you actually constrain this this beast can you actually put limits on it and does pulling it back even a little bit actually do anything in terms of sustaining that change and those are hard questions but i think they're important questions to ask and you might think for instance what happens if we didn't have an nsa uh, would 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 somehow the world unravel? We haven't always had an NSA, by the way. So the world existed a long time pre pre NSA. The NSA in its current form, I think, was formed in 1952. It went through, very like all bureaus, it went through various rebrandings and merging in other bureaus before that. Um, but you know, in terms of the surveillance apparatus in the United States, it's relatively young. Um, so really, during during the, the the first and then really the second world war is when it, it it really matures and comes into its own, and the Cold War really ramps up because you needed this surveillance apparatus to to protect against the communist threat, which is around every corner. Because when you're fighting an ideology, it's not a person; it's a set of ideas, which means I have to monitor everyone's ideas. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. By by the way, you and I are old enough to remember when we didn't have a Department of Homeland Security. Um, created by a Republican president, yep. and and I was involved in public policy at the time, and it didn't take rocket science to predict that that would become a weapon that would be used against Americans. And now um, there's plenty of conservatives and, and obviously libertarians, but you know conservatives are like, wait, all of these agencies are now going after us, and I'm like, well, this this is the dilemma that you're describing, and I talk to conservatives all the time about this because they want. And this is the main thesis of your book. Can you have um, a classical, liberal, constrained government and a big defense apparatus that has aspirations to um, um, be involved in all of these wars? And in your conclusion is you, you can't do both. Yes. So so the idea of a, if a liberal empire, some people refer to it, is internally inconsistent. Uh, which is the very nature of, of empire, the, the apparatus domestically, but also imperialism, which is the, the use of that apparatus to project force abroad and project uh, 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 whether it's ideology, whether it's achieving certain goals in other societies or some combination thereof typically, uh, is inherently illiberal. And all of the most cherished, cherished values that 
liberals broadly construed. I'm using liberals here in the classical Let, sense. Let's define liberalism yep. because it obviously the, the, the word can be confusing. Yes, sure, certainly. Yeah. So so when I when I talk about liberalism, it, it's the political philosophy of individual freedom. So it, it, you know, John Locke, of course, writing in the 1600s is, is considered the father of, of liberalism, and, and there's many thinkers that have followed in his footsteps. But liberalism is a political philosophy and emphasizes the primacy of individual freedom and liberty, so the dignity of the individual, and then everything that comes out of that, the ability to associate with other people, the ability to engage in economic interactions freely with other people who also engage with you freely, the ability to uh, move uh, where you want to move, meaning that you don't have uh, government-created artificial barriers to movement across geographic space. Uh, of course, you have property rights, which which influence where you can move and how you can move. Uh, but there's no one saying you are not allowed to travel over there because I tell you you cannot, or people cannot cross this line uh, because they happen to be born over there or they're in this category of people. So it's a very cosmopolitan tradition in terms of being open to other people and welcoming. Uh, and thinking about what institutional arrangements are conducive to those things. I generally agree with that, except I do want a wall between us and California. Because <laughs> it's just getting too crazy over there. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7. Something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. Um, yeah, like, and, and I, I always have to use the, the classical liberalism, like, like classic Coke, because um, the, the word, um, I, guess, I guess liberalism, as in left liberalism, has been replaced by, again, by progressivism, and it, yep. but it's hard to keep up with the nomenclature. Yeah, right. Um, and and um, we classical liberals or liberals don't really fit into that left versus right thing anyway. That's right. Um, particularly on a subject like this, because I think I'm fascinated that um, in a lot of ways, conservatives are becoming the new skeptics of of empire building and and this entire surveillance apparatus and and the left which used to used to be some of the the, the most thoughtful critics yep. of that are now sort of just accepting it as well if the FBI says it's true it must be true yeah I don't know where that came from but it's a perhaps successful propaganda yeah I, I it's it's a I think it's a complex trajectory and of course throughout American history it's it's ebbed and flowed so of course the old right so Robert Taft um, was 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 very skeptical of of a proactive foreign uh, uh, policy, and so that that tradition is certainly there in the Republican Party as we go back further. But you're certainly right that the the neoconservatives that that really peaked under George W. Bush, um, but you see elements of that there even before the the Bush administration, really were the drivers of of um, during that time period. So we're talking here, you know even before 9-11, but 9-11 opened the door for them to kind of implement their vision. Um, a very expansive, unconstrained security empire apparatus. And there you had people on and the— And they migrated from the Democratic Party to the Republican yes, Party that's as, right. as, as an opportunistic 
certainly political yeah. opportunism yeah. yeah and and during that bush presidency you did have pushback up from the left you also had an anti-war movement when, when obama gets elected now the, the anti-war movement i'm talking outside of the walls of congress of course among the populace it wasn't certainly wasn't as large as vietnam for instance but it existed mm-hmm. e- even if you just went to the white house when bush was president you would have seen people outside almost on, on a daily basis outside the white house obama gets elected i, I did some of those protests there you yeah. go yeah. there you go so you saw it firsthand yeah. o- obama gets elected and it, almost overnight that goes away the the anti-war movement goes away um and 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 many of the criticisms of um the kind of imperialism that had really ramped up under Bush went away. Um, and uh, uh, it's not like Obama was this staunch anti-war, anti-imperialistic president. Um, if, you know, if anything, you can make the argument he, on many margins, he did the opposite. Uh, so from one thing he did, for instance, is because he didn't want, he, he, one of the things he did push back on is we don't want to send as many troops abroad, but what he replaced those with? Drones. Yeah. And so he, he was the main proponent, his administration was the main proponent of ramping up the, the drone war. And, and so I was getting it earlier in terms of ratcheting it back. It's it's very hard, I think, to pull it back permanently because the very nature of the entity is to continually push and expand. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was then Trump's rhetoric against both some of these agencies, but also at least rhetorically, he was very skeptical of, of war yeah. and imperialism that, that kind of contributed that shift on the left but where we are now is as you put it quite nicely we have this weird pivot yeah um, there is there's also this dynamic um, I don't know what you think about this but it seems like you could you could look at um, uh, George W Bush um, certainly Obama um, Trump they all ran very skeptical of, of foreign intervention there's too much war and and, and too too much uh, you know blood and treasure being shed. Um, and they they transform in office, and and I, I I vividly remember the transformation from Bush on the campaign trail to um, yep. 9/11. Um, um, but Obama did the same thing. So like the the what we now call the deep state really has its tentacles in everything. It it, it even struck me as um, you know Trump was more schizophrenic. Like he, he's very bipolar on on defense because he wants to be tough but at yes. the same time he's a critic of this stuff um but you know for all of his rhetoric he didn't get much done um so this i guess is the basis of this book let's that seems like a good jumping off point in search of monsters to destroy the folly of american empire and the path to peace and i want to get to the peace part but um define american empire because i was listening to your your pod with uh, our friend peter betke and um, it's not like we um, are so heavily involved in Ukraine in hopes that Ukraine becomes the 52nd state. Yes, right. right. That's, that's not the kind of empire right. we're talking about. And, and, and so that's what makes America, the American empire unique, is that historically empires have one of the key components has been territorial acquisition. And of course, in the early days of America, you did see that westward expansion and so on. Um, and then, of course, you know, wa- wanting to protect um, Latin America from external um, intervention from other countries, not not necessarily to to claim all the territory, but kind of make it in many cases a satellite uh, or, or client states of the United States. Um, but but I, I and, and academics debate rhetoric and terminology like academics do, and so there is this huge debate in political science about is America an empire? I think it is, and the reason I think it is is because it is 
viewed, it views itself and many other countries view it, and by the way, many citizens view it, as the entity that holds together the world, that its projection of power around the world, some mix of military force, economic power wielded by government, not by individuals left to their own devices, is necessary to kind of this glue that holds the world together. Mm-hmm. And you hear this rhetoric, both from policymakers, um, but also from many academics of the liberal order. Uh, and the liberal order is a result of design. It's a result of a small group of elites in America that project their power. And so uh, while the American empire doesn't acquire territory as empires of the past, it does project power all around the world. And I mean all around the world. Um, it's certainly military uh, force, let, let alone economic uh, uh, force through government, uh, or at least partnering with government. Uh, and what it does is maintains a set of kind of client states. Um, you know, they don't, they don't call them that, but you look, for instance, on where foreign aid goes. You look at where arms sales go. And so then you think about, well, what are the characteristics of this empire? Well, one of its uh, a significant military apparatus at home. Another is a culture of militarism. So you see this right now with Ukraine, irregardless of where you stand on it. You can, you know, you can either, you can either say, well, um, you know, we should do nothing, or I, I think it's good that we send some support. Doesn't matter if you critique the U.S. government at all, or say like, what are we doing? You don't have to. All of a sudden, you're a Putin apologist. Yeah. You, you're, you, you want Putin to take over the world. Uh, and this, this is the, the kind of playbook that happens if you look historically, going back to our point about propaganda and information, throughout wars, which is anyone that tries to not even push back against having a military or against the military doing anything or aid doing anything, they are labeled as a, a, a traitor, unpatriotic, and so on. And... That is highly problematic from the standpoint of a citizenry being skeptical of everything their government does. And so you have a culture of militarism. You know, you see this just in our daily lives. If you think about sporting events in the, in the United States, go to a professional or even a college in many cases, sporting event, what do you see at the beginning? Well, of course, there's the color guard and all that. But oftentimes you see things like a welcoming home of a member of the military who surprises their family, some kind of show of, of nationalism and patriotism. Uh, you walk through airports or, or wherever and you see people in uniform. Thank you for your service. Most of these people have, that you're thanking probably haven't even seen combat or the front line, front lines. You're, you're calling it a culture of militarism, but like in those specific examples, and I think in a lot of these examples, these are these are financed propaganda programs, like the the military um, finances, like the Pledge of Allegiance and the the. the the color guard and all of that. Yes, and, and they paid sports teams, paid yeah. patriotism, of course. They paid the NFL yeah. and, and, a, and a host of other. But but I think it's even deeper than that. I, I you know I, I I can't speak to the present day, but when I was in grammar school, it was the first Gulf War, and I can remember. And this wasn't financed by government, but I can remember our teachers saying, "Well, you got to wear." It was yellow ribbons at the time, um, so you had to wear a, ye- a yellow ribbon pin. You had to tie yeah. everyone tied them around trees, and uh, uh, you know, again, I was a kid. I'm like, "What's going on?" You know, everyone else is wearing a ribbon. I better wear a ribbon. Um, you know, you stand for the pledge the, of allegiance. The seeds of your radical libertarianism <laughs> planted that without without realizing it. Yeah. But you're, but, I, but I just want to come back to your point because it is it is a, an important one, which is there there is the 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 aspects that are not driven by government purposely, but there are those that are, um, and, the, and the sports one is one. Um, and going back to what we were talking about earlier about information control, you know, something that many people don't realize is that government. Again, going back to the world wars, but it still exists today, is heavily involved in Hollywood. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just to give it a, a recent example, you, you look at the recent Top Gun movie, and, uh, you know, if you do a little research on this, there, there's a, 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 a part of the Pentagon that, le- that, that uh, works with Hollywood, and basically they subsidize them. So if you're, uh, if you're making a movie, and it costs hundreds of millions of, of dollars to make an action movie, and if you can get uh, access to military bases, military equipment, either free of charge or heavily discounted, it's a massive subsidy. Yeah. But of course, it comes with a price. And what's the price? The, the, the division within the Pentagon gets to review the script. Yeah. They can't force you to make changes, but they can say, hey, you want to use our, our stuff. And so you see this throughout. And, and then some movies like you wouldn't even think about. You know, So Top Gun was like, oh, that's a military movie. Transformers. Uh, that's another one. Uh-huh. Like Top Gun, like, and this is a. I, I just watched. Um, I guess it was a third season of Jack Ryan. I don't know if you watched this show, but um, I, I realized this, and I, it's absolutely true in Top Gun and um, Homeland, which is a show that I really enjoyed. Um, same dynamic there, yeah. but but the theme, and this, and this gets to the to the general thesis of your of your research paradigm. Um, we are to believe that there is some sort of America-loving, we-must-do-the-right-thing renegade within these government agencies that are willing to risk their careers, jail time, their lives, in order to do the right thing. And and any sort of even common-sense understanding of bureaucracy is, is to suggest that the system weeds those people out, if those people exist. Like they're they're going to risk everything and and go to jail because their agent their their agency specifically is trying to destroy them. I mean, that's the whole story of Top Gun. Yep. Is you know Tom Cruise is going to do the right thing. What's his? I forget what his name is in the movie, but and you know he gets he gets fired. He gets jailed. He like um, and then he's like, I'm going to risk my life to prove that I'm right. I'm like, it's absurd. It it gets to the um, incentive problem. Yep. And this idea that that we're going to put we're going to put angels in charge, who are always going to do the right thing, and that it's ridiculous. Yeah, and that's that's the presumption of of, of much of government in general. But the the military or national security apparatus is a spe- it's a government program, but it's a special one, yeah. and it's special precisely because of the the activities it undertakes, its ability to do real harm to human beings, both domestically and abroad. Um, but you're, you're certainly right. You have a special yes. um, skill to bring all of our cats into into our podcast. Yes, that's right. And, I, and he does. He sense, doesn't. He sense, doesn't care. Since yeah. I'm a, a cat person, yeah. so. Um, but uh, going back to Empire for a moment, one, one of the things I just wanted to touch upon. So you have the the domestic apparatus. Um, you have the 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 culture that's partially emergent on its own. You know, from when our schooling and all that, uh, partially financed by by government and by by other. Uh, uh, government agencies. Um, but the other aspect of this is, is I just want to mention special operations and uh, arms sales and aid. And special operations are these small scale forces, of course, that they don't occupy a country. They, they, they're in and out. But, you know, I don't think people realize the extent of the use of special operations in, in the United States. On, on any given year, it's something like they intervene in various ways in something like 70 to 80 percent of the countries around the world. Yeah. And that's what I mean about the broadcast, the, the reach of, of power. And, and Americans don't know about this. Members of Congress aren't checking this. It's just, eh, you know, it's business as usual kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And then arms sales. The, the U.S. government is the, the largest arms dealer in the world. 
now, some of those weapons are, are, are transferred to other democracies, but again, those can still be used to, they can use, be used for defense, but also for offense. But some of them go to the worst governments in the world, so like the Saudis uh, and others. And um, from that standpoint, you can make the argument that in the name of, of promoting a liberal order, you're actually contributing to illiberalism. You are giving f weapons of force, weapons of control over other human beings to illiberal governments. And so I think that's a nice example of what I'm trying to get at when I say the idea of a, a liberal empire is internally inconsistent because it, it in inherently entails illiberal behaviors uh, on, on, a, on a global scale. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. There seems like, uh, let's, let's jump back to the Saudis just for a second because the the a lot of people think believe and there's cer certainly some truth to this that we can't criticize that the you know, republican president is democratic presidents it doesn't matter we can't criticize what the saudis are doing in yemen because we need the oil but it may be more important to us or equally important that that those arms sales keep flowing because it's such a, a fundamental part of of um of the economy um wh what do you what do you think the the real story is? I think it's probably a combination. So I, I, I think the logic of, of military Keynesianism is true. And, and what I mean by that is I don't mean economically true, I mean it politically true. Yeah, yeah. Meaning that once you, so the idea of, of, of military Keynesianism is the idea of, oh, well, military spending is a win-win domestically because it creates jobs, but it also creates defense. And so therefore, um, you know, this is this is a great thing. It, it spurs economic development. Through, ra rather than government building bridges, we're creating jobs while also creating defense. And, of course, people have talked about this since um, World War II, right? The kind of myth that World War II got us out of the Great Depression and all, and all that is based on that logic. Um, so that certainly exists. But I also think there are oil interests uh, certainly at play. And I, I think it's true, by the way. I, I, I think that if the United States government didn't do certain things, certain goods and services would go up in price, no, no doubt. Uh, so then the question becomes, people have to reflect on what kind of society they want to live in, what their values are, uh, and, and, and what they're willing to trade off. Um, no, no doubt that if you intervene abroad, if you engage in control and conquest of other societies, you can get more resources. Throughout history, that's been one of the driving factors behind conquest. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't think you have to, I think you can accept that reality, but also say, well, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Um, so uh, we've, we've talked about, um, so the, the way that my simple mind processes the world, and this goes back to the, the George Mason tradition that I was trained in, um, when I look at any policy, I, and, and, and I, I did this a lot during the so-called war on COVID, um, I, I look at incentives and and that's sort of the whole James Buchanan public choice yep. way of understanding that you know even even if we know what the right thing to do is it may well be that um, political incentives are are not ever aligned with the public good 
Um, but the other one, and this this gets more fundamental to your critique of of, of empire, is the knowledge problem, sort of the, the Hayekian understanding that central planners don't ever know nearly enough to redesign complex systems. And, and the more they try to, the more they screw things up. Um, because our empire today is not about um, taking over something and, and plundering it um, in the old sense of, of resource extraction. It's about um, exporting democracy and, and helping people. Yep. Um, but it seems like we always just make things worse. Yeah, and so the the way I leverage this in, in this book and, and my work in general is I think the knowledge problem when it comes to foreign policy and intervention is even more significant than Hayek talked about. Hayek was talking about central planning within a, a nation. So if you what happened what what would, what would real world socialism look like when you actually tried to implement this? And his his argument or going back of course to, to Mises before Hayek was there's no way for planners to gain access to economic knowledge to determine how to best allocate scarce resources to their highest valued use. That is an outcome of social cooperation of markets. It's not something that can exist absent those interactions. It's emergent. And that's relevant for the defense sector for the reasons you and I were just talking about. Claims that somehow the, the military sector can create economic development assume that those in the military sector know how to allocate scarce resources to create economic development. So that's the Misesian Hayekian knowledge problem proper. But there's another aspect to it, which is do we actually know how to design the overarching institutions of society? Certainly. I think we could think about, and you and I talked a little bit about this when we were defining liberalism, what are the general features of free society? People might even disagree about some of those, by the way, but let's assume we could come up with a list of characteristics. They'd be very broad. But then what does it actually mean to establish institutions in society that do those things? And to my way of thinking, those are, are not objects of, of design. They are largely spontaneous and emergent. We think about them as objects of design. And, and, and the entire empire apparatus is grounded in that. It's grounded in a Hobbesian view of the world. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. People want to kill each other. Someone has to bring order. Who's going to bring order? Leviathan. And without Leviathan, it's chaos. But one of the main insights of Buchanan, Mises, and Hayek, and it's one of the key themes in the liberal tradition, is an emphasis on spontaneous order. That through human interaction, things emerge that we couldn't even imagine and design absent those interactions. And that then makes you realize, once you appreciate that point, that what passes oftentimes as order is actually chaos. Uh, that, that, that in trying to control complex systems, you are actually generating chaos in the world. Again, in economic terms, so, real-world socialism being perhaps the most stark example of that. We're going to rationalize economic production and bring order. What do you get? squalor and misery yeah what happens when you try to bring order to the world oftentimes squalor and misery well we just had a 20-year experiment in afghanistan of of central planning and and most people um including myself i was shocked that it unraveled in days like i i didn't expect them to establish a liberal democracy um even though there were those great photo ops of people with the the stained thumbs yep. voting and that that must have been like um 2004 so i don't yes, know, early, early on yes early on and they accomplished absolutely nothing but I, I would argue they accomplished less than nothing because you have um 
all of that destruction and all of those lives lost and all of all of that uh, malinvestment that is now in the hands of really bad guys. And yet, we didn't. Did we learn anything from that? Yeah. Well, for, first of all, one thing to note, you know, it, which people oftentimes forget, and this this I think highlights one of the issues of trying to bring order to the world. We have to remember that Afghanistan in 2001 had its origins in U.S. interventions to fight the Soviets when they invaded Afghanistan in the late 70s. Of course, the U.S. government didn't engage directly. It was a proxy war like many of the wars during the Cold War, where they funneled weapons through Pakistan into the hands of, at the time, they were called freedom fighters because they were on the side of the United States. They pushed out the Soviet Union. um, And then, of course, that left a power vacuum. Um, which which led to that. So you think just from that you would have, I mean, there's a reason Afghanistan kind of has the, the, the moniker graveyard of empires before the United States intervened yeah. um, because there was the Soviets, there was the British before that. Uh, and, and then America, of course, was the most recent uh, uh, kind of victim of the graveyard, if you will. Um, but, you know, I, I, I agree with you. When the U.S. exited, I, I didn't have high hopes, but it was amazing how quickly it actually collapsed. It was it was I- embarrassingly quick, and I was hopeful for a little and bit. And by the way, my classical liberal friends who were running the uh, what amounts to the libertarian think tank in Kabul were surprised at yeah. how quickly it unraveled. So even people so on the ground, yeah. It wasn't like I wouldn't have have, have enough knowledge to right. to have known, but even he didn't know. Right. Yeah, it was it was amazing, and. Um, you know, I, I, the reason I was hopeful is because I'm like, all right, given all this terribleness, now this is going to like pull back the curtain and people are going to reflect on, you know, let's actually have a conversation about what, what this is all about. And uh, of course, that was the extent that happened all was very short lived because of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine and then the response to that. And then now the rhetoric is, well, we have to pivot away from the war on terror. Now the concerns are Russia and China. Uh, and so now you hear all this talk of, well, we need to have, again, bring order to the world and all this talk of balancing. You know, uh, the, again, the way people talk about the world in Washington, D.C., whether it's the economy, the kind of hydraulic view of the economy, you know, it's too hot or too cold and you pull this lever or that lever and you just get the out like a light switch. They also talk about international relations that way. We need to balance power as if is a scale. Yeah. And if you just put the right amount of weight over here, you get perfect balance where you're going to have peace and order. Uh, and, and, and we know, we, it, the experts, know it, exactly the a, mind around yeah, way to put it's a science. Yep. Um, the science is settled. All we have to do is sort of jigger the... And just getting the, the right people and the right resources. Yeah. And if, if something goes wrong, it's never, well, we actually can't do this. So let's reflect on whether we can do this. It's always, well, they messed up because they're not the right people or we didn't have enough funding. Uh, and, and when you have that kind of mentality, um, of course, you're going to end up doing the same thing over and over again yeah. because you never reflect on the, the root issues. Yeah, so we, we've talked, and I've I've tried to explain. I have this project um, called the Deadly Isms, where I'm trying to build out the difference between using using violence as the principle of organizing society, and, and and you know you could list all of the isms that that embrace government violence as a way of of uh, making sure that that people live a better life, which obviously is a contradiction. And when you get away from that, you're you're getting closer and closer to paradigms that embrace cooperation, um, peaceful cooperation, uh, and that's the that's the other half of your book. And and again, I was listening to you and and Pete talk about this on the on the Hayek podcast. Um, um, 
Kenneth Boulding and others have talked a lot about about conflict re- resolution and peaceful cooperation. And, and the reason that you and I are classical liberals is that we think that people have an almost infinite capacity when left free to to get together and solve problems and hash things out and move forward. That's the entire basis of, of the market process. Um, so how do we go from this, this Leviathan machine that is just doing just horrible things to people, not only in our own country, but across the globe, to um, a, a paradigm that, that maximizes cooperation? Yeah, well, the first one, I think, the, the first thing, which is an intellectual project, but I think like, like all projects, everything at its core is about ideas and recognizing the possibilities of things. You have to, in order to, in order to recognize possibilities in reality, we have to recognize the possibility of those possibilities um, and, and recognize that intellectually it's, a, it's an alternative. And so the first thing, and, and even classical liberals, you know, many classical liberals I know, they'll say, okay, government's really bad at education, at healthcare, but we need them, you know, defense, courts, police. Th- those are kind of the public goods that we need government to provide. Perhaps, uh, but one thing I think we need to take seriously is maybe not. It is at least within the realm of possibility that government, just like all the other kind of critiques we have in other domestic programs, is not the best alternative. So where then does that leave us? Well, one thing to think about is that peace and peacemaking, and this is one of the things I really like about Kenneth Boulding and his wife, Elise Boulding. She was a sociologist um, who also wrote on peace and culture, what she called cultures of peace, is already all around us. We take it for granted. Just like when we talk about spontaneous order in markets, we say, man, isn't it amazing when we walk into a grocery store and all these products around us, and it's so ordinary to us that we take it for granted. And we don't think about it. But when we do step back and think about it, even one item, what it entails to actually get that to the shelf, it's, it's just staggering intellectually. And then you think about all this stuff. And we complain, you know, when our Amazon, Amazon Prime package comes a day late. That's like the kind of things we complain about because we're so used to this. Well, the same logic applies to peace. Uh, you know, one of the things that the Bowlings pointed out was that in our ordinary life, we face conflict on a regular basis. And conflict is not the same as violence. One of the things they highlighted is that conflict is ubiquitous. You wake up in the morning and you go to make a, a cup of coffee and so does your significant other. And you know, you have a, you have a one a K cup, one cup, and you're, you know, who's gonna make it first? I, I know how that comes yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. or 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 you know, uh, who's gonna who's gonna get to pick what movie or what restaurant or, or what trip to take? Uh, these are all situations where there's conflicting interests. We don't think about them that way because we resolve them. We don't we could resort to violence. Violence is one means of deciding who gets to make the cup of coffee first or who gets to control the, the TV remote. But most of us, there are exceptions, of course, most of us in our daily life don't do that. Most of us in our, in our daily life, if we walk down the street and bump into someone by accident, you know, we don't turn around and physically assault them. We typically apologize. Uh, uh, and so do, so do they. And once you realize this, you realize, number one, that, that peace, peaceful navigation of conflict is a possibility. And then, of course, you say, people will say, well, no, that's th- those are great little one-off examples, but we're talking the world and the nation. But there's a couple of things to realize. One is that the nations are ultimately derived from a collection of individuals. And so one of the mistakes that people make when they talk about government controlling 
and, and creating orders, they, they talk about it as if it's abstract from the people in the country. Notice what that does. Again, you can't have liberalism. It's inherently authoritarian. If government is separate from the people and acting upon them, that's an authoritarian regime. But that's how we define it versus some kind of self-governing liberal democracy. But on top of that, we also do see larger scale examples of peacemaking. I'm reading a fascinating history right now, right now of, um, of, of pushback on nuclear testing. There's a historian by the name of uh, Lawrence Whitner is his name. And I, I, I came across this and I, I was completely unaware about this. I knew, there, I knew there had been pushback and protest throughout the world. But his argument is that we have nuclear weapons. They're, they are the most destructive tool on the face of the earth. They can annihilate much of humankind multiple times over. So we, it's hard to think about something more destructive than that. And they're not used. And most people's responses see the reason they're not used is because we have nuclear weapons. So the standard deterrence argument. And he says, well, that can't explain everything because there are numerous instances be between in history where nuclear powers could have used nuclear weapons against people that didn't have nuclear weapons and didn't. And his argument, uh, and he's not a classical liberal, but he's, he's a historian and he's writing about just about the, the movement, is that people power, these pushbacks across the globe scientists, but also as ordinary citizens who were highly concerned with the devastation that nuclear weapons could do to fellow human beings, but also the planet in general, got together and organized what we would call civil society and put so much pressure on governments that uh, both democracies, but also authoritarian governments were limited in using them. And, and he has documentation. So he has access to documents where they're, you know, internal memos where they're saying we can't do nuclear testing because there's so much public outcry. And when I read this, it, or as I am reading it, it's quite shocking to me because it's here's a decentralized, no one, no one was like, I'm, you know, I'm the central planner of the anti-nuclear movement. We're all going to get together. There were all these local leaders. They came from all different backgrounds. Some of them were socialists. Some of them were environmentalists. Some of them were, were libertarians. So, you know, all, all different backgrounds. But they were able to come together, create these groups, create newsletters, and, and put supreme and extreme pressure, I should say, on political leaders to prevent them from using nuclear weapons. And to my way of thinking, that's a, a, an amazing phenomena that gets neglected when you say, you know, we have nukes and they have nukes, so we have peace. And, and it makes you think, well, what's really doing the work here to generate the peace? Yeah. Um, and so then you take that logic. And, you know, Bol Bolding had this, um, you know, Kenneth Bolding, he was, he was, he's a great writer. He's very accessible for an economist or for an academic in general. But he has these funny little kinds of, 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 of phrases or terms used. And what, what he called it Bolding's first law. And he said, Bolding's first law is if something exists, it must be true, um, which, of course, is cute. But it's also quite powerful. And his point being that I, I observe peace throughout my daily life. Therefore, peace is possible. We just have to have the ability to intellectually recognize it. And then once we recognize the possibility, then it's a matter of thinking about what alternatives exist to leverage that up in different areas. And that completely shifts the paradigm because you recognize that you do not need to be reliant on top-down monocentric government for order. It's exactly the opposite. That government oftentimes squelches those things because they say, no, you ordinary people, you're not good enough to do this. You need to rely on us. And it pushes out the ability of people to do those things. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibion Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. 
We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Yeah, it fundamentally hijacks it, and that's that's sort of the the, the white pill in this conversation. And it, it, and that specific story to me is reminds me of something more generally. I talk about this this conflict between the the deep state and the centralization of power, and they're, they're trying to stop people from thinking for themselves and speaking for themselves and organizing all of all of these attacks on 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 technology and social media. I think arose from the fact that people had these new tools. They started using them as free people do, and that was undermining the the monolithic power of of the people in charge. So it's it's kind of this this monumental clash between yep. between freedom and cooperation and and the spontaneous emergence of of order and rules and peace versus the the people that sort of profiteer off of us fighting with each other. Certainly. Certainly. And so, again, it comes back to this control over information, which, again, shouldn't be surprising. You know, a, a lot of people that are not sympathetic to the idea or, or don't think about it hear deep state. And it's like, oh, that's a conspiracy. I mean, think about it. What what do authoritarian regimes do? What's like the first thing they do? Or what happens when you see a coup happen? They take over media. There's a reason authoritarian regimes have state owned media. Now, their their logic is, well, we're the experts. We have the information and we need to communicate it to you. Okay, maybe, and I'll, in which case you might say, well, just have competition, and you'd win out in the competition if you're so great at it. But really what they want to do is control the flow of information so that there can be no deviations from the party line. And when you realize that, you realize that, okay, once you get into a position of power, you want to control information. So does the United States have a free media? Well, certainly on many margins it does, certainly relative to other countries it does. But in many ways, there are moves that are are currently being made as are being revealed with all the stuff with Twitter and everything. But again, going back decades, where you see blatant efforts to control information. Again, not long ago, the U.S. government wasn't, they didn't even try to hide it. Like, what's the Creel Committee? It is, it is the attempt to control information propaganda during the World War. Uh, uh, because it, the American people had to, to know what was going on. And what does every single piece of information say? America's winning. America's great. You know, without America, there's no freedom, democracy. If you don't, if you don't support this, you know, your kids are going to die and, and the world will go to hell in a handbasket. So do you think um, modern corporate media, um, and I, I think about it maybe a little bit differently than you are because, I've, I mean, I've read some of your work on this, but do you think modern corporate media is more captured by government or has it always been this way? I think that, I think it's a matter of degree. So I think there's always been some political influence or attempt to influence media. I think that's, I think that's a constant as long as government exists. I think we see that. I think through time that ebbs and flows and the, the nature of it ebbs and flows. And so even corporate media now, I think there are parts that, I think there's government capture I, that that I'm, I'm not in government influence, but I don't think even in those areas that are influenced, it's completely controlled. So I don't I don't think that, you know, I don't think there's someone in government that that tells the New York Times 
everything that appears in the New York Times. I don't think there's someone in a back room writing it and then yeah. Yeah. I think there's some space for dissent, for critique. But here's what I also think. I think there, and we, we know this now with like Facebook, I think there are people that will say at times, hey, we need you to do this. Yeah. Um, and I, also the incentives, the way, because politics- Well, I've actually read those emails. Um, yeah. Elon I'm, Musk has yes, released right. them. Yeah. Well, we know, we know this. And, and it's, it happens during wars all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the, again, we were talking about whistleblowers earlier. Go back to the famous Ellsberg case. They're trying to block publication in newspapers, of course, from, of the information that's revealed. So secrecy, control of information, it certainly exists. Um, and and, and um, my my- response to that is the best we have is contestability. That's the best we can do. Um, constraining government, as long as government exists in this space, is not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so the best you can have is contestability, diversity of views, but it really then comes down, which is, uh, you know, one of the, the really fascinating things to think about is what does it require to be a citizen in a free society? And it actually requires a lot. It's a very heavy burden. Um, and, and thinkers have recognized this for, for centuries. Um, you can't just be some passive actor. You, you certainly can't engage in, in what's called parentalism, um, uh, not paternalism, where government imposes things on you, but parentalism, where you actually ask government to take care of you as if you're a child, because then the game's over. At least under paternalism, when government says, you know, you're doing X, if you, if you push back, you have some some recourse, you know, at le- or at least there's that pushback. You're not voluntarily complying. But when people turn to government and simply say, do this for me because I'm helpless, uh, the game's over. Yeah. And that's my big concern with this stuff, with the defense stuff. It's that when we think about it, that government must do it or else, it basically turns us into children, just like a, a child needs their parent to take care of them because otherwise they starve or, or they don't have shelter or clothing. When we treat government that way, uh, the game's over. And so uh, going back to our, our media discussion, contestability, innovation, I think those are our hope. I actually took, um, um, as I thought about, first I was outraged, but as I thought about these extraordinary new infrastructure, um, apparently like um, a bunch of agents at the FBI were reading our tweets, right? And they're they're flagging them even down yep. to you know some poor guy with 15 followers told a joke about the election, and and he was flagged. Um, it seems so extraordinarily um, un-American, a violation of the First Amendment, all that stuff. But it also strikes me as quite desperate um, that that they're um, incredibly worried that they've again lost control of the media narrative, and and. In, in some ways, I, I think they've very much captured corporate media, but you also have this um, revolution of, of outsiders. I'm thinking at this moment of someone like Glenn Greenwald, yep. certainly Joe Rogan, um, Joe Rogan platforms, um, guys that tell your sort of story about about interventionism and, and the disasters that happen abroad. And he's bigger than CNN and MSNBC and... Um, I think Fox, I looked at these numbers, like, you mm. know, one podcast is bigger than what these guys get in a week. Um, and I, I might have butchered that number slightly, but it's it's extraordinarily big, right. just this one guy. And then you add all of these other, um, you know, the real journalism, I think, is coming from these renegades like, like Glenn Greenwald. Yeah, sure. If anything else, it, it's competitive pressure, which I think is always a good thing. Um, because the other thing that happens is when you get, even if even if you're not 
maliciously trying to manipulate people. When you are reliant on politicians and policymakers because you need you need them, they control access. And so, you know, this is one of the things I, I've talked about in the in, in my work on propaganda with war reporting, is that the it, it, one of the things that where media tends to become an extension or an appendage to government is that government puts them in certain positions, so they'll embed them with certain troops that do certain things, but they're not going to embed them with troops that do other things. They limit their access to things. But also the threat is always you're not going to get access to the gatekeepers if you say something bad. And so uh, that's a very strong check. And that's why I think the kind of people you, it's a check on being critical is what I'm saying, which is then I think why it's important the kind of things you're highlighting about these opportunities for these kind of, I don't know if you want to call them renegade, but, but entrepreneurs, let's call them. People that see a space for intellectual content that doesn't exist and see an audience for it and then provide it. And just think about it. Like that's a relatively recent phenomena um, to, to be able to have those kind of platforms. And so that's a great thing. So the more more contestability, the better is, is my view on, on information. Again, it takes a lot of um, kind of wherewithal and, and, and a willingness for the citizenry to be aware from that and to sort through it. Because of course the critique back is, well, then you can get a lot of bad information too. And yeah, of course, but you get that from government too. It's not like you centralize information control and all, only, you only get good information. Yeah, I feel like the flow of, of bad information was there before we had these new tools. And this is this is my my argument for optimism um, for for classical liberals is these these tools um, for all of the censorship and and all of the the shadow banning and all these things that are absolutely happening. Um, these tools allow us to have conversations like this. And, and the access to um, the substantial academic uh, research paradigms that, that are coming out of the Hayek Center at George Mason University, that used to be a silo. Like you would actually yep. have to go to Mason and, and listen to a Boulding lecture or something or listen to Buchanan and stuff like that. And now you have the opportunity to reach uh, potentially everybody that cares. Yep. And, and, you know, most people don't necessarily know they care until there's some sort of like nugget or seed or, or idea that sparks their interest. So I think, I think we have an opportunity to do that. Um, before we wrap up, let's um, talk, first of all, like talk about the whole research paradigm because you, this is the, I guess, fifth, fifth book, book yep. so far. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I didn't know this either, but, but you, you started graduate school at Mason a couple weeks before 9-11. Yeah, that's right. And and, and before that, I, I lived in New York City. So I, I went to, I grew up in northern New Jersey. I went to Manhattan College in New York City for undergraduate. That's where I met Pete Becky. He, he, he taught at Manhattan for one year in between NYU and Mason. So my junior year, my third year, that's how I got introduced to economics and these ideas and that's why I fell in love with them. But what I did after, right after I graduated from Manhattan, so Pete moved to Mason my senior year. Um, I worked down on Wall Street at J.P. Morgan. And so um, for a while, I would actually, I lived in the city for a year um, after undergrad, and then I moved to Hoboken, New Jersey. If you don't know, it's across the river, and I would take the path train to the World Trade Center. So, uh, you know, I, I was doing that Hoboken into the path train or walk to Wall Street for, for over a year, and I left there to come down to Mason. Um, and then, of course, uh, I start in 2001, and um, September 11th happened. So so I just come from from being right around the World Trade Centers, having grown up, 20 minutes outside New York City, um, and then to to, um, to to GMU, the attack happens. Um, and you know, prior to that, 
I, I already had liberal or libertarian leanings, certainly. And I, I understood libertarian foreign Ever since policy. That, that forced yellow. Yeah, that's in. right. In grammar school. Yeah. And uh, even though I have to say, you know, for much of my life, I was kind of apolitical. Um, yeah. I didn't have strong opinions either way. I didn't think about it. But in any case, the U.S. invasion of Iraq and then Afghanistan happens. And uh, it was actually a conversation. I was, I was Tyler Cowen's research assistant. And one day I was just chatting with him in his office, like, no one is talking about what is required to, to rebuild an, a nation. Like basics, like what I consider basic stuff that we were talking about earlier. Like, what would you need to know to design a liberal society? It's not like you just sit down and say, like, here's a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Just follow this and voila. You know, that worked for a little bit at least. Uh, you know, you'll get that too. Or, you know, how, 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 uh, what are these incentives that these bureaucrats but also regional actors are all facing? Anyway, that became my, my dissertation. Um, which was turned into my first book then. On, it was called After War About Nation Building. And then it's kind of gone from there. And, and I've, I focused uh, initially on efforts to intervene abroad. Then I started focusing on effect, domestic effects. And this is kind of, this book I view kind of the culmination of tying those things together. And now where I'm, I'm shifting more of my focus is into the, the, where we just ended up and where the last chapter ends up, which is let's talk now about peacemaking. And, and what are all the different ways that we can think about alternatives to the state that already exist, but also that might exist if we give people space to figure things out for, for generating peace. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm, I'm pushing now. We should, I, I would love to talk about that because I, um, I had Deirdre McCloskey on the show and I was, I was asking her to help me sort of flesh out this, um, this reimagining of, of the political spectrum. So like we're told left and right, and I, I don't buy that at all because Pol Pot is not somehow a better person than Adolf Hitler. Like I feel yep. like they're sort of the same monster. And so I have all of these deadly isms um, below the the center line. And above that, I, I'm trying to avoid, like I'm not going to use a word like libertarianism because it's an ism, but I want to use um, values instead, like tolerance and cooperation. And, and we decided at the top of that spectrum, and this, this will sound a little hippy-dippy, but, but I think it's absolutely true, is, is love. And there's a, there's a lot of, of trust and, and relationships that go to that authentic thing. So I think, I think the entire process you're describing is, is worthy of this because I don't think people realize it. Like it sounds ridiculous in some sense, you know, particularly if you spend too much on time on Twitter, that we could actually cooperate and empathize and and figure each other out and 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 work things out. But it's it's all around us. Like yep. this is what we do every day. Yep. And McCloskey refers to this, of course, part, a key part of this is sweet talk or persuasion, the ability to communicate with other people. And that's one of the things that we need to get away from and shift is that when you have the kind of mentality that exists now in the, in the American Empire. The, you're communicating, but what you're communicating is force. So you think of something like Taiwan, all right? And we can all recognize the tension there. So that's the other thing. Like, discussing this doesn't mean that somehow you are just saying, yeah, whatever happens is great, or, or when bad people do other things to other human beings, I, I applaud that. But when you start sending members of Congress over to Taiwan, uh, that's, that communicates something. Yeah. And it's not communicating, well, let's, can, we, can we talk? Can I persuade you not to do something um, or, or to take a different path by recognizing the mutual benefits? And maybe that's not possible, just like it may not be possible in, in daily interactions, but it also might be. And by forcing that off the table, by saying, 
by, by aggregating people into a nation and saying China or Russia can't do this or we can't do that. They're our enemy. You're communicating, but you're communicating a negative sum situation by definition and removing the possibility of communication. And if, if you just, as a good thought experiment, think about if you tr acted that way in your daily life, it would be horrible. Our daily interactions with, with not just members of our family, but just in the world, mundane interactions would be terrible if we if we acted that same way. Yeah. And we don't because we recognize, as you put it quite nicely, the benefits of cooperation and respect for other people. Um, let's uh, we we got to wrap up, but let's talk um, a little bit about uh, resources for people that are interested in this stuff. Um, talk. I don't even know what your title is, but you're your ex at the Hayek Center Mercatus, George Mason University. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm a professor of economics in the Department of Economics at George Mason. That's my uh, main affiliation. But then we have the Hayek program for the Advanced Study for Philosophy, uh, Politics, and Economics, and I'm the associate director. Pete Becky, who we mentioned earlier, is the director, um, and and we do a whole host of, of of wonderful activities. You mentioned we have a podcast, and those po the podcast now has just taken off, and we have. Um, because uh, uh, it's not just one person doing it. Uh, all of my colleagues in the high program have the opportunity to talk to people that, that interest them. And so you, anyone- and it's, it's called the Hayek Podcast? Yeah, yep. yeah. And, and, um, and then there's kind of subcategories depending on, on interests. And, and um, so I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm planning one, I haven't done it yet, but I'm planning to do a series on these issues of peace, for instance, yeah. where I'm gonna talk to people that are, are focused on this. And so it's all on the Hayek Program website if people are interested in that. We also have student fellowship programs. Um, both for students that come to Mason, but also for graduate students, um, masters and PhD who are external that wanna come and visit three weekends out of the year um, and sit around and talk ideas. And then we also have undergraduate um, uh, online. It's called the Lavoie Fellowship, um, where we, we meet over Zoom and talk about ideas. And we're just launching in a couple months, we'll see how it goes, a new high school program. Um, it's, it's part of the Lavoie Fellowship. Um, and we're kicking it off to talk about some of these ideas with uh, uh, ambitious high school students. And so um, I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes. And uh, I love it because I, in addition to getting to work or, uh, on these ideas and talk to my colleagues about them, I also get to interact with hundreds of, of young um, people ranging from prior college, now, now high school starting soon, all the way up through PhDs who are interested and excited in these ideas from all different backgrounds, all different ideological persuasions, but they all share kind of an ambition and, and hunger for intellectual discussion. Uh, so it's a it's a great great I'm, life. I'm kind I'm kind of jealous that those resources exist today because I had I had to stumble across these books um, purely by accident and and you I, I lost so much time finding this. Yeah, and certainly. Now you can. Now you can get it in high school. That's amazing. Um, and you are on social media? I am. I am. I have my, my website, ccoin.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, ccoin1, I think, is is my handle. And Yeah, I found you this morning. Yeah. So Yep. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. Well, thank and, you uh, for having me. It's a pleasure speaking with you as always. Let's keep doing. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, Go to freethepeople.org.